We live in a constantly changing world where the speed of information is changing how we think and act and connect with one another. When people in a society lose faith in their institutions, in God and in each other, the nation collapses. We need help rebuilding trust and tying it all together. Welcome to All That To Say, a podcast exploring the interrelatedness of all things in long-form conversation. Former Surgeon General of the United States, Jerome Adams, joins Jim Ryan to discuss COVID, creating space for those who disagree, and how representation matters. Dr. Jerome Adams, uh, lately the Surgeon General of the United States, we're so glad to have you at our table. Thanks for coming alongside. And uh, when I think about the Surgeon General, I just have this like vision of somebody all buttoned up in a military uniform. It has a certain kind of military frame to it. And I think that goes way back to the dawn of the Republic when it uh, first was imagined. Uh, Tell me about the Surgeon General. When we talk about Surgeon General, does that general mean you get to be the rank of a general? Or is it more like, no, you're you're generally the surgeon? What would you say? (laughs) Well, fantastic question. And uh, when people think of a Surgeon General, they... uh, often don't think of someone who looks like me, uh, a a younger-looking African-American man. And and that's been, quite frankly, a challenge is overcoming some of those stereotypes. But I often tell people I'm the Surgeon General, but I'm neither a surgeon nor a general. I'm actually an anesthesiologist, so I've worked with a lot of surgeons. And the Surgeon General has a rank that is equivalent to a general, but I'm actually an admiral. So the Office of the Surgeon General was started uh, back uh, during the time of John Adams. Uh, The public health service was started to inspect ships as they came into port. It was a marine uh, kind of hospital. Maybe that's why the naval motif goes through. And so the the Navy would actually um, go out and stop these ships, and then our officers would go out and inspect them to make sure they weren't bringing in infectious diseases. Mm. And uh, we we adopted naval rankings. And, uh, you know, the, the... The interesting thing is that that's how the service was started uh, several hundred years ago. And uh, today, we're still trying to stop infectious diseases like Ebola, um, like Zika, now uh, like COVID from entering our, uh, our communities. And so what's old is new again. Wow. And, you know, as you're just describing that, it makes so much sense, honestly, because sometimes I think we, we kind of just drive by uh, positions and offices. We know there's of substance. We know it's a it's a real thing to be a surgeon general. But whoa, what's the history of that? You just opened up my eyes to the the reality of a 18th century America where ships are coming and somebody's got to check them out. Well, one of the most memorable uh, trips that I took was to Ellis Island. So every single person who came into the United States through Ellis Island was inspected by a public health service officer, and it was a 15 second exam that they would do. And uh, you think about this, in 15 seconds, from a clinical point of view, you had to look at someone and determine whether or not they were fit to enter the United States. But you also think about, uh, again, the heavy weight that is on public servants, that's on um, uh, doctors, that's on nurses. You could truly, truly change a person and an entire family's trajectory. (laughs) Their whole history. By 15 seconds. And so uh, uh, it was a very powerful trip that I took. And 
when you think about all that that, that entails, uh, one of the other challenges of my job is just simply explaining to people what I do and what I don't do. Uh, for instance, uh, a lot of people think that I'm the president's doctor uh, and that I have an office next to him in the White House. Uh, the truth is that I rarely um, saw the president uh, until we got into this COVID situation where we were having to do daily briefings uh, because the president's got a lot of other things going on and my office is several miles away from well, the White House. Your office has a lot of other things going on too. <laughs> exactly, and, and, exactly, and we're doing a lot of things um, too. But uh, I tell people, number one, I lead the public health service. So I am a vice admiral or I was when I was the uh, sur uh, Surgeon General, and I oversaw 6,000 uniformed officers in the public health service. So we're one of eight uniformed services, Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines are the ones that everyone gets. Coast Guard's the Jeopardy question. But then there's National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. Uh, there's the Public Health Service, and there's the new Space Force. Okay. So I was the CEO of a 6,000-person company. That was one job that I had, which alone would be a full-time job. But then I also have uh, the role of being the nation's doctor, trying to help America understand how to be healthy. And it's my understanding that the Surgeon General doesn't actually have a lot of leverage on public health policy per se, but has long been recognized as kind of a voice, uh, an influential thought leader, we might say, in public policy on public health, right? Well, here's something else interesting that um, I bet a lot of your listeners aren't aware of. And that's that the Surgeon General used to have a lot more policymaking authority. The Surgeon General used to be over the National Institutes of Health, um, used to be essentially equivalent to the Health and Human Services Secretary. And politically through the years, uh, there were um, political struggles, both within government and uh, between government and external entities. And many people thought the office of the Surgeon General was too powerful. And so they gradually eroded away many of the, uh, the actual policymaking authorities that the Surgeon General had and the funding. And one of the biggest ironies is that Surgeons uh, General, modern-day Surgeons General, were compared to C. Everett Koop. But uh, one of the things about C. Everett Koop is that he was so powerful and, and wielded his authority um, in such a, uh, I think, tremendous way that he almost set us up such that we could never have another person like him because political parties on both sides decided we can't ever have a Surgeon General that powerful again and took away funding, took away staffing. Uh, I, I, I often say this to people so that they understand it. I used to run the Indiana State Department of Health, and you and I are in Indiana right now. Yes. When I ran the Indiana State Department of Health, I had a staff of about 1,000 people that I oversaw, and I had a budget of three to $400 million dollars. Uh, as Surgeon General of the United States, I had a budget and staff that were less than 1% respectively of what I had when I ran the Indiana State Department of Health. But yet, I'm supposed to uh, be in charge of health uh, policy for the entire country in people's minds. And so uh, not a lot of funding or policymaking authority, but a very, very large bully pulpit. And uh, it took a while to figure out how to wield that. But uh, you can change a lot of what happens in this country and in this world by effectively utilizing that bully pulpit. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's a main stage, and you walked out onto it. <laughs> and as I'm just sitting across the table from you, Dr. Adams, I, I, I feel like Darth Vader. And I want to <laughs> say to you, 
I am your father. <laughs> I am old enough to be your father. And I'm looking at your resume and thinking, man, how did that guy get so much done in a lifetime that's young enough to be one of my sons? Uh, because you've been on a, a rocket ship of a kind, uh, zooming through co- a career path. So, I mean, let's go, uh, unravel this back to the beginning. You are a leader, and Dr. Adams, your term as Surgeon General has uh, not long ago come to a close as there's been a change in the White House administration, uh, which is a kind of an ordinary pass the baton, I guess. But uh, Well, actually it's not, and we can talk about politics later too, but the Surgeon General actually is supposed to be a term position. It's a four-year term, and, and my, yours is cut short. My, mine well, was cut short. Well, let's just do that right now. So, <laughs> I mean, since we're there, so you had a term, it's being cut short as the new administration came in. Uh, and asked you to step aside, right? Exactly. And you're saying that's not always the way it goes. Well, that's not the way it's designed to be. You really want your Surgeon General to be objective, to be uh, apolitical. And uh, you and I have uh, talked about this a little bit, but one of the major challenges I faced was that uh, I wasn't trying to be the Surgeon General for Republicans or Democrats or black people, or white people, or rural areas, or urban areas. I was trying to be the United States Surgeon General. And unfortunately, there is less and less space in this world for someone who doesn't take a side. And one of the uh, biggest complaints that I get still on Twitter right now is not for something that I did, but for people saying, you didn't take a side. And so you end up then taking fire from both sides. But uh, I hope that we can get to a place where we can depoliticize some of these public service positions because uh, they shouldn't be seen as Democratic positions or Republican mm-hmm. positions. It really frustrates me that, um, that Dr. Murphy is seen as Obama's Surgeon General and I'm seen as Trump's Surgeon General, and they politicize it even when there was a newspaper headline yesterday or a CNN headline yesterday where it says Trump's Surgeon General. And uh, I would always correct people and say, I was appointed by President Trump, and I am thankful for the opportunity, but I am the United States Surgeon General. Yes, yes. And I hope again that we can get back to that. I hear that. And you know what? Let me just postpone a little story about your trajectory. And let's go right there. I mean, you... You came to the stage as a Surgeon General of the United States. You were before that in Indiana as the Public Health Commissioner, as you've described, and you you get a call one day. Tell me about that. I mean, out of the blue, or you knew this was coming. How did that work? Well, again, God works in mysterious ways. And uh, if you had asked me, well, it's interesting. Uh, I, I mentor a lot of young people. And I think one of the biggest problems to the young people listening out there is that everyone tries to convince you you've got to have everything figured out. What's your five-year plan? What's your 10-year plan? And that you somehow are doing something wrong if you don't know exactly where you're going to be 20 years from now. But what I say to young people is if you ask most successful individuals out there if they knew 20 years ago what they'd be doing right now, 99.5%. 5% of them are going to tell you absolutely not. If you go to 10 years or even five years, uh, I've changed the jobs every three to four years in my life. And that's actually the norm nowadays. It's not the norm to get have it all figured out and go on a trajectory. So uh, I never dreamed I would be in this role, much less. And, and I joke about this with, uh, with Vice President Pence. Uh, I never dreamed that uh, this young black guy from the East Coast, would uh, end up being so aligned with um, 
a uh, uh, gray-haired white guy <laughs> from Southern Indiana, uh, and uh, but but what we were, and so um, uh, I had the opportunity when I uh, was a- in medical school to get involved with organized medicine, American Medical Association, um, uh, American Society of Anesthesiologists, and I would go to the state house and I would go to Washington D.C. and I would uh, talk to our leaders about what I thought we needed to do to improve health. Um, and to improve uh, support for clinicians, for doctors, nurses, et cetera. And so uh, when then Governor Pence, uh, Indiana Governor Pence, needed a health commissioner, someone threw my name in the hat. And, you know, otherwise I would have not known him. I would have never come across his radar. But God put me in position A or opened the door, and I walked through it. And that uh, afforded that opportunity, that introduction. And I went in and I interviewed with him, and I, I still remember this. He first thing he says to me is, "Gosh, you look young." <laughs> he, he did exactly what you did. He looked at my resume, and then he looked at me, and he, he, he thought, wondered if he had the the, the right guy. But uh, uh, we talked, and he offered me the job. And uh, on day two of the job, I had to stand next to him and explain how we were going to deal with the emerging Ebola crisis. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and so we dealt with that. We had an HIV uh, outbreak in southern Indiana, the largest HIV outbreak related to injection drug use in the history of the United States. And that is, uh, I think, how I got on the national radar screen because um, that was tough. We uh, uh, we took some hits, and uh, it's, well, tell me, t- took some hits. Why? What? Well, we took some hits because there are a lot of people who felt that we didn't act quickly enough to institute a syringe service program in southern Indiana. And what I often explain to people is that, A, they were illegal at the time, and so you couldn't just do it. And B, uh, you had a lot of uh, cultural um, community pushback against these kinds of programs. Well, and you have to help us define that to a syringe program, meaning— Provision of clean syringes. Exactly. Because that was a transmission vehicle for the HIV. Exactly. But it suggested to the some segments of the public that that was encouraging uh, unhealthy use of drugs and so on. Is that the idea? That, that was the concern. That yeah. was the concern that people, including my own family, had. And I've talked very publicly about my brother's struggles with substance use disorder. And there are a lot of people out there who did and still do feel that that you are enabling substance use when you give people um, these syringes. But what the science shows is that when you give them um, clean syringes, you not only disrupt disease transmission, but you form a bond. You create a relationship. It's an opportunity to sit down with someone and, uh, and talk to them about treatment, uh, talk to them about the resources that are available. I mean, and I don't want to make it sound like I'm... Um, more religious than what I am, because uh, I, I believe in in God, I believe in Jesus, uh, uh, but I struggle too, and 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 I, I so I don't want to make it seem like I'm out there quoting the Bible all the time. But I, I did very much think about that, and the fact that Jesus sat down with some of the people who were considered the worst in society um, at the time. And he did it because that's how you build that bond. And so when I went down to Southern Indiana, I had to sit down and break bread with the community, with the sheriff, with the uh, public health officials, with the uh, with the business leaders, and 
form that relationship. And once they trusted me, then we were able to talk about a syringe service program. And then the community supported it. Because if they hadn't, and if I just used my authority as state health commissioner to open a syringe service program, uh, the sheriff would have set up a roadblock outside my syringe service program, arrested the first person who came in uh, to it, and no more syringe service program. And so, you know, you form those relationships. And I'm actually very proud of the work Scott County did. And I was proud to be a part of that work because after Indiana opened up a syringe service program down there, Kentucky went from zero to over 50 syringe service programs. Ohio doubled their number of syringe service programs. There are thousands of cases of hepatitis and hundreds to thousands of cases of HIV that have been averted in this country right now because of the work that Scott County did. But it started with relationship building. My, one of my favorite sayings is people need to know that you care before they care what you know. That's exactly right. And, and this is your kind of uh, introduction to public health uh, in official office capacity is managing that crisis. It was a crisis. It really was. And, and the outcome was that the crisis subsided. Exactly. Right. Well, the, the, the crisis subsided, that syringe service programs were now legalized in, in, in Indiana, but in many other um, places in yeah. middle America and rural America and conservative America, and that we actually changed systems. Uh, federal law was changed to allow funding for uh, support of syringe service uh, programs because of what we did. And, and I'm passionate about this story because, again, it shows people that, if, that sometimes change takes a while. Sometimes it takes longer than what you want. But if you don't take the time to build those relationships, then change either isn't going to happen or it's not going to be long-lasting. And this whole episode uh, puts Dr. Jerome Adams, public health commissioner in Indiana, uh, in a higher profile. Well, exactly. On the national uh, radar screen, Time magazine, um, President Obama at the time was getting daily updates about the HIV outbreak in southern Indiana. We were really the canary in the coal mine, if you will, um, where the uh, United States and the world realized, hey, we have an opioid epidemic here, and it is impacting Everyone. It's impacting places we never dreamed of. Even the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control, had to change the way that they allocate funding and resources because guess what? A rural, mostly white community in southern Indiana was never on their list of at-risk places for an HIV outbreak. Nobody saw that as a, a drug center. Uh our, our video jockey, Matt Derby, is picking up some headlines here. Who is Jerome Adams? <laughs> and, and help us connect the dots. So from HIV infection spread by needles reused, yes. right? Uh, opioid, the reason that the needles are being reused is because opioids are involved in the injections, right? Exactly. This is how it all works together. Exactly. Um, my own brother, and I've been very public about this, struggles still with substance use disorder. And one of the things that, that that helped us understand was not just that the opioid epidemic was was bigger than what we thought, but that uh, we can't look at someone and determine if you're at risk or if you're misusing substances. I was the Surgeon General of the United States. I grew up in the same house as my brother who has been incarcerated for substance use disorder. So you can't say it was a bad home. You can't say it was bad parents. Uh, you can't say it was uh, a bad upbringing. Uh, anyone can unfortunately go down that pathway. And for my brother, for instance, it was unrecognized, untreated, stigmatized mental health issues. 
anxiety and depression. And uh, he self-medicated, first with tobacco uh, and alcohol, and then he moved on to marijuana. And then one day he went to a party, and he'll tell you someone gave him a pill, and it was like a light switch went off. And that is how quickly you can become addicted to, uh, to opioids. And so I've spent a lot of my uh, recent years in public health really trying to destigmatize uh, mental health uh, uh, issues and destigmatize substance use disorder and destigmatize the treatments and the remedies for substance use disorder because there's stigma against even admitting you, you have anxiety or depression. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps here in farm country. There's stigma against um, being labeled as an addict. And I, I use that word intentionally because it's a word that we try to, to, to discourage people from using because it's a stigmatizing word. But I, I really want your, your listeners to, to hear me when I say it, that, uh, that that's something that, that when you call someone an addict, there's an image we all have in our mind. And it's this image of this person who is not someone who we think of ourselves as being. And so we're trying to separate that image that we have in our head, that stigma from the reality that most people out there with a substance use disorder are, are people who, who had good upbringings, who, uh, who had challenges, mind you, but, but, but uh, who were just like us or who could be just like us but for a, uh, a turn here or a turn there. And the, the, the treatments of uh, syringe service programs in the lock zone. As Surgeon General, I put out an advisory calling on more Americans to be willing to carry Naloxone. And this was something that shocked me to the core as a Christian, was how many people out there uh, were against using naloxone to prevent someone from dying of an opioid overdose. Naloxone. What do you mean? Naloxone is, an, is a medication. It's an opioid overdose reversal agent. So if someone takes too much heroin, too much fentanyl, too much of an opioid, uh, they, the people who die, they die because uh, they stop breathing, their heart stops. Uh, and naloxone is a medication that binds to the same receptors that the opioids bind to in your body and pushes the opioids off so that you start breathing again. And that's usually the, the main way that it prevents people from dying. Uh, I, I want you to, to think about this. Uh, once upon a time, there were people dying in the streets from cardiac arrest, from heart attacks. And uh, we discovered that we could teach people how to administer CPR. And uh, now if you go into a room of 10 people, it's hard to go into any room of 10 people in the United States and say, raise your, uh, raise your hand if you know CPR and not have one person who, who doesn't know CPR. But that wasn't always the case. Well, now in communities like the one we're in right now in Anderson, Indiana, you are more likely to encounter someone who's having an opioid overdose when you're walking down the street than you are to encounter someone who's having a heart attack. That is the reality in far too many communities across America, and Anderson is not um, unique mm -hmm. in that respect. So I wanted people to think about naloxone the same way they think about CPR. It's something that anyone can carry, anyone can administer, and you can save a life. But I was shocked at how many people out there were were of the mindset that that was enabling people. Uh, how is saving someone's life encouraging them to go out and use again? The problem wasn't that we saved their life and they were just going to use again. The problem was we had to save their life first, but then we had to connect them to care and treatment and meaningful evidence-based treatment. And so I used my bully pulpit as Surgeon General. The very first thing I did was craft a Surgeon General's advisory 
on naloxone. And we, we were able to increase naloxone prescribing in the, uh, in the nation by 400%. So very proud of that work. I'm proud to be able to use my bully pulpit to destigmatize naloxone. We're starting to destigmatize treatment, um, medication-assisted treatment for substance use disorder, because that is a evidence-based way to help someone recover. But again, stigma kills more people than cigarettes. It kills more people than heroin or fentanyl. It kills more people than COVID. And uh, I think we all need to try to normalize the fact that we're, we are all uh, less than perfect individuals, mm -hmm. mentally, emotionally, and physically. And uh, that, that we shouldn't look at someone and think of them as bad or being at fault um, because we've not walked in their shoes. Well, even just the vocabulary, substance use disorder, is a turning of the page because there is a lot of judgment and uh, preconceived notion, prejudice, exactly. when people struggle with some kind of substance abuse. And uh, I think we all understand that there are choices people make, but not everything is consequent to a choice that they've made. Uh, well, but, and, and the choices that people make are 100% dependent on the choices that they have in front of them. That's right. I had this conversation with my daughter today. I said, you're very fortunate. Your father is a doctor. Um, he's not just any doctor. He will, he's the 20th Surgeon General of the United States. And you have choices that some of your schoolmates, classmates, friends may not have. And that's not something for you to feel guilty about, but it is something for you to be aware of and recognize. And so we can't, through our privilege, be blinded to the fact that other people didn't have the opportunity to make those same choices. Uh, other people have adverse childhood experiences. And we know that if you have uh, more than a, than a few adverse child exper childhood experiences, the chances of you uh, misusing substances, dropping out of high school, ending up in jail or commit for committing a crime, they go up exponentially. And so we need to, to figure out how we protect children, but also how we build resiliency into our systems so that children can recover even if they've had an adverse childhood experience. This whole conversation just is uh, reminding me of a conversation I had with one of my sons uh, who lives out in Seattle and has spent the last few years of his life working uh, with a uh, homeless uh, relief ministry. And he kept telling me, Dad, they're not homeless. They're people who live outside. And I didn't catch it at first, but then he unpacked for me, uh, you know, there's a lot of stigmatization about people who are homeless in the popular vernacular. And it, often there's a, a run to, well, they're homeless because they have been irresponsible or they have lost themselves in some kind of substance abuse or, or whatever. I mean, and yet, in fact, uh, in many of our urban centers, there are many people who are homeless consequent to other economic factors and things that beyond their control. They may even be working, but living in their car, but they can't make a sustainable wage because they're not educated for it or, or whatever. Anyway, the whole vocabulary of, of me going home to Seattle to visit, which is my original home and my family sells roots here, uh, to, to drive by and realize, oh, those are people who live outside, changed the way in which I thought about what could I do to help address this thing. And you're, you're, I've just resonated with what you're saying. Substance abuse disorder is a way of just a step towards saying, wait a minute, there are ways that we can help 
instead of just writing off or dismissing or imagining, well, uh, you've made your bed, now you have to sleep in it, which is sadly where many times we respond. Well, there are ways, and I love that you said that because some of these problems seem so big that it's hard for any individual to think, what can I do? But one of the things you can do is be cognizant of the words that you use in the times when you are either perpetuating stigma or busting stigma, addict, homeless. Uh, so, so many, so many uh, words that we use, even obesity. There is a lot of um, shaming that goes on with obesity. But in many cases, uh, there are adverse childhood experiences. There's mental health issues. There's trauma that causes people to self-medicate with food. Mm-hmm. And so you're looking at them saying it's all your fault without realizing that uh, that was, in many cases, a reaction to terrible traumas that people faced or just an inattention, an inability, a lack of access to mental health services that uh, could have put them in a better place mentally and physically. Or not even sure what to do. Exactly. Because sometimes you get so far in a, down a road, you're not sure that there is a way back. Well, as we've talked about these things, you found yourself... Uh, in a higher, an increasingly higher profile, uh, doing good work here in Indiana. And then one day somebody says, Dr. Adams, do you want to be the Surgeon General? How does that come down? How did that uh, Well, develop? I mean, surprisingly, that's exactly how it happened. Uh, Vice President Pence called me on the phone and said, hey, you want to be the Surgeon General? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Did that I, take you by surprise? Uh, it did. It did because um, I never dreamed that I could be I never even dreamed I could be a doctor. I actually had good good grades. Both my parents were uh, were school teachers. We grew up poor because school teachers don't get paid well, and we were a family of five. Um, but uh, education was always important to uh, to me and my family. And so I had three point nine GPA throughout high school. Um, really, on paper, could have done anything. But I never met a black physician in my life until I got to college. If you don't see it, it's hard to be it. And so um, it wasn't until I got to college and I actually met Ben Carson. Oh. Now, he was the first African-American physician that I had ever met. And I know some of your listeners, just statistically speaking, will love Dr. Carson and some will hate Dr. Carson. <laughs> but uh, I want you to understand, some of, some of your listeners love me, some of your listeners hate me. Um, and that, and that's, that's just a fact. But I want people to understand representation matters. It's important for people to see someone who they can um, relate to. And one of the privileges of being Surgeon General was not just being a, uh, you know, an African-American Surgeon General, but being a Surgeon General who grew up in rural America on an old farm, being a Surgeon General who, uh, who uh, has roots in Indiana and can represent middle America, not just someone who's from the coast. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, but yes, I was shocked when I got that call. And what I said to him was, I have to ask my wife. Um, because uh, my wife is from Indiana. Uh, she uh, had never lived uh, anywhere else. And, and she grew up on a farm, too, in a rural environment. Yes. One of our favorite things to do still is to go to uh, my in-law's house, her parents' house, and take the kids. And uh, they go out and they, they get fresh eggs from the chickens. <laughs> they go out in the cornfield and pick ears of corn and go out and throw them at the chickens and squeal while the chickens are, you know. Not so much of that in Washington, D.C. Not at all. <laughs> Not at all. And so uh, my wife actually, to her credit, because I thought she was going to say, no way, no how. My wife said, well, if uh, 
this isn't a sign that uh, that that you should be using your talents um, in this way. Then I don't know what is. And so she very much um, supported me, even though um, she's also said uh, very publicly that uh, if you asked her what her idea of of H E double hockey sticks would be, <laughs> it would be packing up her three kids and moving across the country to live in Washington, D.C., just because it's so different than, than what we've become accustomed to and what our kids and she have known in Indiana. You know, I, as you're telling me that story, I, this is a trivial pursuit, but I, I'm fascinated by history and biographies, and I read a biography of Pat Nixon. And, of course, she lived quite a tumultuous life. Her husband was up and down. Uh, but somebody asked her once about uh, her journey to Washington, D.C. and all that happened. And all she said was, well, it's not the life I would have chosen, <laughs> which I thought was a great gift of understatement. But uh, you're demonstrating, as Pat Nixon experienced, that sometimes uh, your family is called to some place or to do something. And your wife supported you in that and became a part of that team going there. But you also uh, experienced a a challenge as you're moving from Indiana to D.C. in your own wife's health. What happened? Well, uh, about a month after my wife and kids moved to D.C. So I moved out in September when I got confirmed. The kids finished their that first half of the school year, and the, uh, then they moved out over Christmas. And around uh, January, February, my wife noticed a mass in her leg. And uh, Wintertime, we thought it was a lymph node cold virus. We blew it off. A couple weeks later, um, it was still there. She went in to get it checked out. And the very short version of a much longer story is that we found out that she uh, had metastatic melanoma. That's very serious. Very serious. Um, uh, I will tell you that uh, 10 years prior or even five years prior, uh, the degree of spread she had would have been uh, a almost certainly a death sentence, and uh, again, the Lord works in mysterious ways. Um, being out there, we were near the National Institutes of Health, and she was able to get into a trial, and um, and was able to uh, to get uh, access to new medications called uh, called uh, immune modulators and immunotherapy, and uh, she was successful with her treatment, and uh, the the the. Um, cancer went away. After about a year of treatment, we were doing fine. Um, then uh, it actually recurred yet again, and we're now in the midst of uh, treatment um, again for the recurrence, and things are going okay, but uh, uh, I might not have a wife right now. My kids might not have a mom if we hadn't had that disruption in our lives that mm-hmm. took us to Washington, yes. D.C., and put us um, in a position not just to serve, but to also uh, um, have that have that treatment available. Opportunity that might not have been available, even though there's great medical care in Indianapolis. Uh, Washington, D.C. is the center of the universe when it comes to uh, the latest technology and the National Institutes of Health. Yes, what a t- story. Uh, we will pray for your wife. Please. please. Because still, still on the journey. Well, for, for my wife, for the kids, and, and you hit on a point that I think is important for your listeners. Um, we talk about public service and public servants, and 
it is critical to me that people understand the importance of finding out how you can serve. And it can be a Surgeon General of the United States. It can be as an individual carrying the Loxone. It can be as someone choosing the right words to use so that you don't stigmatize someone around you who you don't realize is suffering. We can all serve in different ways. Uh, but I also want to add to that that uh, none of us serve alone. And uh, when you take on positions like the one that, that you're in, like the one that I'm in, um, our families serve too. Um, yes. they, they share in our joys, but uh, they also certainly share in our travails and our challenges. And my kids, they, again, last night on TV, uh, there were some people saying some not-so-nice things about me on CNN, and my daughter says, Daddy, they're talking bad about you on TV again. Mm-hmm. Um, my wife is taking care of three kids and, um, and undergoing cancer treatment. God bless her. So God bless her. But while I am, uh, while I'm trying to be Surgeon General of the United States and take care of her. everyone else. <laughs> Here's the headline from just yesterday mm-hmm. uh, about a statement you made about the vaccine protocol. Exactly. And uh, people jumped all over it. Well, and they jumped all over it. Interestingly enough, um, for largely political reasons, because um, and and I don't want to get political here. I, I'm trying to depoliticize the situation, but the statement that I made was that we should be thinking about giving states the flexibility to consider giving more vaccines as an initial dose versus holding on to vaccines for a second dose because the studies show that uh, two doses is 94% effective, but one dose is 92% effective. We at least need to ask that question, and this question was actually brought up by uh, Michael Osterholm, who's a famous epidemiologist who advised the Biden team. So this wasn't a political— It wasn't out of nowhere. It wasn't out of nowhere. It wasn't a political statement. It was a, hey, there's emerging science that says we should at least talk about this as an option. And uh, the attacks uh, largely came at me through a political— lens. And uh, I just hope that we can get back to a place where we can have regular conversations about things that matter. Everything now has become politicized, whether where, where your kids go to school, whether or not they should go to school, uh, whether or not you should get vaccinated, one dose, two dose, whether or not you should wear a mask. These are conversations that we should be able to have as human beings and as scientists based on our commu- what's best for our community and what the science says, not based on which political party you're a member of. Which brings me back to your entree to D.C. You, you find yourself with your family relocated to this uh, center of the power play universe. Uh, you're taking on a new role. You get a uniform. Mm-hmm. You get a rank. Uh, An expensive uniform. <laughs> uh, you know, and, and, and don't at all want to say poor me, but uh, a lot of people don't understand that, uh, again, they're, they're real um, monetary cost to public service, uh, I had to buy all those uniforms myself. Oh, you have to and, invest in them. Uh, and my wife actually, um, actually, I remember her saying, honey, um, what's this uh, $3,000 charge on the credit card bill uh, as we're moving in across the country yes, and sure. the bills are racking up? And I said, well, that's my uniform. And she said, they don't pay for that? And I said, uh, no, honey, they don't pay for that. So uh uh, I have the uniform still, the uniforms. There are multiple different uniforms that you have but to But you get. own them outright. <laughs> I, I, I do now, and, uh, and and you can better believe that my wife is going to make sure we find some use for them in the future. <laughs> well, I mean, it's a lot of adjustments on so many fronts, but you're also thrown into a cauldron, which uh, 
uh, while there are politics in Indiana, I know about that, uh, in every state, every place, suddenly you're in the center of the political universe. Uh, how did you find that? Uh, you know, you mentioned to me once before uh, we came to the table here today about how, you know, there's a, there's a certain relational, transactional nature of life in D.C. It doesn't matter what side of the aisle you're on. There's just this kind of way of doing things that must make it hard to navigate. Who do you trust and who wants what and how do I navigate? Did you find that challenging? Oh, I found it incredibly challenging because one of the things um, that people either love or hate about me is that I, uh, I'm very open. I wear my emotions on my sleeve. I talk about uh, things the way I would talk to my mother or a neighbor, uh, very plain spoken. I don't try to go out there and act like Dr. Adams. I go out there and say, hey, it's Jerome, your neighbor. I went to medical school. Here's what you should know about vaccines. And uh, I try as much as I can not to shame anyone. Again, shame, stigma, those separate us. Those push us further apart. And again, the biggest complaint that people often have about me is that I refused to condemn uh, other people. But I've always taken the approach that if you can find something in common with people, if you can bring them into the fold, if you can uh, build trust with them, you are going to be a lot more successful in convincing them to change their behaviors than by trying to shame them into changing their behaviors. But D.C. is a world where um, there's, there's very little quarter for people who don't take sides. Uh, it's almost an instant calculation. You know, in Indiana, uh, people will ask you, uh, what town did you grow up in? Um, where did you go to high school? Uh, out in Washington, D.C., it's, it's where do you work? And it's almost an instant as assessment of mm -hmm. which political party you are. And then you're sized of. up. And then you're sized up. And, and, this, and then a caricature is created of you in their mind. And uh, so many people have this caricature of me based on a snippet that they've seen on Twitter <laughs> or, or uh, a, uh, you know, a blurb on CNN or, or just something that they heard from a friend. Uh, and that's why I appreciate this opportunity because I, I try to help people understand. I grew up poor. I grew up rural. I grew up a kid with asthma. One of my proudest moments was when I stood uh, at the White House and uh, in between the president and the vice president of the United States and spoke to America at a press conference and held up my inhaler because I know how stigmatized people with asthma are. I knew growing up how I was bullied because of my asthma. Even now, when you look at TV shows, one of the things that frustrates me is if they want to show a kid as being weak or nerdy, mm -hmm. they show him pull out his inhaler. That's the emblem. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. And so uh, I tried to be very open about my vulnerabilities, my family's vulnerabilities, because I wanted people to understand that, hey, there's someone like you here um, fighting to make sure you're heard and fighting to make sure you're thought about when we're making these national policies. And of course, as we've talked already, you came to the job already with a passion uh, to to address the opioid crisis. Uh, mental health issues are important. I mean, those kind of weave together. They're separate issues in some contexts, but also side by side in others. And, and then as you're doing your job, there is the pandemic, the COVID-19, which overtakes everything, it seems. Uh, 
it, it has to be a kind of a detour from what you dreamed of. I think about uh, George W. Bush coming to the White House. Well, people don't realize in the year 2000, he was elected to be the education president. <laughs> but nine months in, there's the 9-11 exactly. attack. And suddenly his whole trajectory is altered. In a, in a similar way, your trajectory also was altered by this crisis, national crisis. Uh, I, I just have... I think most people, uh, Dr. Adams, would recognize you from that epoch, that period of your service. And let me just say thank you. I mean, seriously, thank you for your service, because just as you've described the costs and the disruptions, and, and maybe there's the benefit for your wife's health and so on, but nevertheless, it's no small thing to do what you have done for the public good. So thank you for that. Most people wouldn't see all of that except that you were put on stage, you became part of the exactly. lineup of the task force that became so much a fixture uh, in a season of our national uh, consciousness. And I just have to, if you're game, I just tell us about that. So let's say we're doing the, that, there was that series of weeks where there was a daily briefing with the president and the task force. What's happening as you walk down the hallway to the press briefing room? Oh, and I just have to say, I uh, had the chance to visit the White House a few times. And uh, in fact, just a year ago, December, I was uh, in that White House briefing room. And most people who have not been there cannot imagine how small it is. Yes. <laughs> it is really tight quarters. Uh, and with a pandemic, it has to be spaced out differently. But I mean, it's kind of a, a modest space, really. But on television, when you just see the podium, it seems like it's a grandiose. Well, isn't that what we all do with our Zoom calls oh, now? If you see, what you see on the screen versus what's going on in the background? Well, well, let me say, some people should take a tip on that on their Zoom calls. <laughs> I've seen some stuff in the background you don't want to have. Uh, that said... What's it like walking out there? Uh, is there a prep? Is everybody agreeing about where this is going to go? Or you just kind of go out and wait to be asked a question? Well, um, we would have our daily meetings of the task force. And uh, the vice president would usually run those. And you'd have Tony Fauci, Deb Burks, um, Dr. Redfield, the CDC director, Steve Hahn. But you'd also have other cabinet secretaries there. Because what people, I think, really have been forced to reckon with is that Nothing exists without health, and health mm -hmm. can't exist without all these other things. Transportation, mm -hmm. uh, shut down because of COVID. Uh, uh, the, the business community, um, deeply impacted by COVID. Housing, uh, one of the biggest risk factors for spread of COVID is multi-generational housing. So we had to have Dr. Ben Carson there, um, head, of, head of HUD. So we'd all sit around and have you know, uh, 90, uh, 90 to 120-minute meeting about where we were, and we'd walk through the data. Dr. Burks would walk us through the data, and uh, and then we'd discuss whatever pending topic there was, pen, uh, different policy issues. Were we going to put out a recommendation for X, Y, or Z? And then at the end, based on uh, the discussion and the policy recommendations and what we felt we needed to communicate to America, uh, the vice president would say, okay, um, you, 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 and you, please come out and with us to the press conference. And so if we were going to have a transportation announcement, hey, we're shutting down flights um, back and forth to Europe, then the transportation secretary would come out. And so I, I would end up out there probably, I'd say uh, on average, um, once to uh, twice a week. Um, and, uh, and you typically, the vice president would say, I want you to come out and talk about this particular facet that mm -hmm. we discussed. And most of the time, I was uh, tasked with helping to highlight um, disparities, inequities, 
Um, and, uh, and the things that we were doing to try to make sure, for instance, our Native American and tribal brothers and sisters were getting the resources that they needed, uh, that we were collecting data on, uh, on, uh, on the pandemic according to demographics. And I did a lot of work behind the scenes to try to make sure we could improve our, our data collection. And, and that's where my focus was. But when you're walking out, um, it is something that is, uh, I, I'll never forget it, you know. You're, you're walking out, and they've got all these TV cameras and reporters, and it's like Daniel walking into the lion's den. <laughs> and I, don't, I, I, I know many of them. Uh, you develop a relationship with them. Uh, uh, you get there a little early. We'd go out first, and then the president or vice president or both would come out. So you'd shoot the breeze with the reporters a little bit. You had to be a little guarded yes, because yes, the cameras sure. were on. But, sure. but uh, you'd shoot the breeze with them a little bit. Um, but... Uh, but you never knew where the questions were going to come from. And that was one of the biggest um, adjustments and shocks for me was that I was going out there to be Dr. Adams and to answer medical questions. And more often than not, it was a politically framed question or a question that was seeking to pitch you against some other entity. Do you agree with what... Um, President Trump said or did? Do you agree with what Joe Biden says or did on the campaign trail? And uh, I'm thinking, I just want to tell people why they should be wearing a mask. I just want to tell people where we are in vaccine development. I just want to have a conversation with people about what they should be expecting in regards to the pandemic. So uh, it was a chess game. You go out there with prepared what you want to say and what what you want to communicate, but you usually at most would have uh, two or three minutes to give your proactive spiel. And then after that, you're just reacting to the questions that are being asked. And uh, if you pivot, then the headline is Surgeon General refuses to answer question. Right. If you answer the question and take the bait, then that cha- then they don't cover at all what you wanted to put out there. So it was, it was tough. Yeah, that's a impossible scenario in a way. No, I, I have to disclose something here as a way of asking this next question. So... Uh, you wouldn't know, but I grew up wanting to be in government. That was my ambition. I, I just dreamed of being in politics, and I had my course all set. Two-year, five-year plan never works that way. <laughs> but uh, I still I, don't I, know what I want to be when I grow well, up. Well, I'm with you. I'm still trying to figure it out, and I'm your father. <laughs> but I, I, I wanted to be the mayor of Seattle, and then I'd be the governor, and then I was to be the president. I mean, I, I was preposterous now, but I'm just saying I grew up with that kind of game. So today, as I... Today and through all these years, whenever I watch the news or I see a news conference, I have the secret thing inside of me. I, I'm ashamed to say it, but I just think like, ah, get off the stage and give me the microphone. I could answer that better. Now, <laughs> I'm telling you that to say, how about you? You're at the press conference. <laughs> Do you ever? Did you ever find yourself watching others answer questions and think, man, I could, I've got the answer to that one, but I don't have the mic. Well, that was one of the great things about the team that we had. And uh, we were all um, good friends, Dr. Burks, Dr. Fauci, Dr. Redfield. Uh, and none of us had a problem saying, you know, that's a question about virology. That's a Tony Fauci question. Or um, Dr. Adams, Jerome's been working on the disparities piece or is the head of the public health service and can help talk about those issues or Dr. Burks, she really knows the data inside and out, and she's the best one to help you understand mm-hmm. what the trends look like. So we we really did work well together. But one of the so, so that's the actual 
questions of substance. Yes. Or of, of, of relevance. Of expertise. To, to, of expertise to us. The challenges, again, uh, and where that came up to, uh, uh, was really when you would get these curveball questions, and we got way more curveballs than what we got um, fastballs down the middle. And, uh, and you're sitting there, and it was painful to sit back and watch um, each other have to try to, uh, um, you know, hit return serve on a question that was completely unfair or completely came out of nowhere. And you're in your mind trying to slow down time and ask yourself, okay, um, do I answer the question even though it's built on a completely false premise? Do I spend my time debating the premise? Or do I just ignore the question <laughs> and pivot to something that That's I think it. the American people need to hear? And like I said, there are pros and cons no matter what. So uh, can, it was always challenging. Can you give me an illustration of a question you think unfair? Or well, what's the context of an unfair question? Well, um, for me, again, it always, and, and it was, it's different for each person, but for me, it always came back to the, well, why won't you condemn? And uh, I will do a, a really quick, but, but a somewhat deeper dive on a complex issue, and that's what do you tell people who are gathering? And uh, I've had the pleasure of going around the country. There are people who will remember for the rest of their lives the day that they got to see the Surgeon General of the United States, the President, the Vice President. And so it is something that I, I really approach with caution to condemn someone for saying they're going to go to a rally and exercise their right to, uh, to assemble, their constitutional right. Um, and I would get it from one side. If, why would you condemn the rally? But then a different station would ask, will you condemn the Black Lives Matter protests? Why won't you condemn uh, the people gathering for Ruth Bader Ginsburg's vigil? And no matter what answer you gave, you were, you were ripped apart for it. But my answer was always consistent. The virus doesn't care why you're gathering. Uh, the virus um, will prey on you if you don't wear, your, wear a mask, wash your hands, watch your distance. And uh, I recommend that people take these things into account so that they can make an informed decision about whether or not they are going to gather, and if so, what precautions they're going to take when they gather. That is what I said consistently when I got asked about Black Lives Matter protests, when I got asked about rallies for the president. Um, but it was always, again, sent at you from a political angle. They, they didn't really want to know how people— Right. Should stay safe. They wanted to get me on record as, as being for or against right. a particular person. And the answer, you have a consistent answer, but it's the framing of it exactly. that is trying to get you. And, uh, trying to get the headline. Yeah, sure. Well, I get that. So we want to work on that right here. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, this is not about that. So in that crucible experience, uh, it's, it's a season that's come and gone. Would you say that you miss that? I mean, you described just now for me a a kind of like uh, a bunker, and I mean that in a healthy way. You're, you're fighting a battle against this COVID disease. You're meeting regularly with people that you name, Dr. Fauci, Dr. Burks, uh, Dr. Redfield, that you respect, uh, felt like were good teammates. Uh, and now that's, that team isn't meeting anymore. I mean, do you miss the camaraderie or the, or the, the, the bonding that you had there? Or you're glad that, I'm glad that chapter's closed. Well... Yes, I, I do miss the camaraderie because you, 
you really do when you're uh, uh, in a trial like that. You come together, you learn about people and their families, um, and, and you you really support one another. And um, all of those people who I named and more um, are friends. Uh, and uh, and so I do miss that. One of the things that I um, miss most, though, is I can't tell you how many times I felt like, and this is again where where I felt like, okay, God wants me to be here. Um, how many times I felt like if I hadn't been there, that perspective wouldn't have been brought to the fore. And sometimes, again, it was uh, the perspective of rural or middle America. Uh, you know, that, that way of framing something or that ask is going to fly very differently in downtown L.A. than what it's going to fly in, in uh, rural Indiana or rural Montana. Uh, sometimes it was the perspective of being an African-American. And I, I, there were so many times that I was the only African-American or person of color at the table. Sometimes it was the perspective, quite frankly, of being a little bit younger and being someone with kids who were still in school. Because uh, in, especially in those high-level government positions, a lot of times it is people who are older, empty the, nesters, the kids are gone. The impacts of the policy are not the same. Exactly. And so I was one of the few people who could very much, who was going through the, my kids aren't in school, and I'm more worried about their mental health than I am about the risk of them getting COVID. Uh, I also had the perspective of, again, my wife dealing with cancer and the dangers that other people presented to her when they weren't following uh, precautions. And so I had a very different perspective on on uh, our need to protect everyone else around us. So uh, that's what I miss because I worry that particularly um, the voices of rural America, middle America, um, and, uh, and, and many swaths of, uh, of minority communities aren't um, necessarily um, at, at the table or getting that same voice that, that, that they did when, uh, when I was there. And so I don't, I'm not there. I can't say that for certain, but, uh, but I haven't seen much... Um, about or outreach to some parts of this country. And I worry that that, that is, again, either intentionally or unintentionally happening along po- on political lines. You have uh, surfaced this issue, uh, Dr. Adams, about the inequities of the pandemic, healthcare per se, but in the pandemic that kind of comes front and center between communities uh, that are minority communities. And I think most people have a comprehension of of that debate. They may not agree with the analysis, but they understand, well, there are communities that are of color or they're minorities and they're in cities and they may not be able to get to the dock in the same way somebody else can. But you've also introduced alongside that the inequity of rural health care and access uh, and that both are challenges and we can't just focus on one without the other. Tell me about that. Well, I tend to look at diseases and think about risks and uh, and, and risk factors. And I think we have to be honest that some people are just more at risk than other people. I am less at risk for a lot of things, as are my kids, because I'm a doctor and I live in a nice neighborhood. Uh, my daughter was out riding her bike today. Uh, there are some neighborhoods, 
many neighborhoods in this country where, as a parent, you can't send your kids to go and ride a bike around the block, your 11-year-old daughter. And so um, there are um, certainly uh, risks that come with, with income uh, differentials. There's risks that come with, uh, with uh, being on one race or another. And uh, I think we have to have the courage to be able to have a conversation about racial bias without either accusing each other or feeling like we're being accused of being racist. Um, that's another place where there's so much loaded language and stigma that it makes it impossible for many people to have a conversation. But to your point, growing up in rural um, southern Maryland on an old tobacco farm, ironically enough, uh, I very much appreciate the challenges that rural America faces, the lack of access to health care. First time I went to Washington, D.C. was uh, in a medevac helicopter because I had a severe asthma attack, and they couldn't take care of me. You could have be treated in, in, at home. At home. They couldn't take care of me, and I would have died. Um, and so uh, I very much understand how care is challenged. And then after that, I, I, my parents would have to take off work and drive me, and it was a whole day that they'd have to drive me to Washington, D.C. for checkups at Children's Hospital in Washington, D.C., and that impacted their ability to generate income. Uh, that was extra stress financially and otherwise on, on their lives. Uh, there are challenges that come with, with being in rural America. There are transportation challenges. One of the big issues my brother now has, uh, the one who has substance use disorder with uh, treatment programs, is uh, you can't just hop on a bus line um, or, or walk a couple of blocks and find a treatment center. A treatment center is... Uh, is um, 10, 15, 20, 30 miles away. And uh, if you don't have a car, then you can't get treatment. But we don't think about necessarily access to transportation as being a major barrier to whether or not you're going to be able to recover from substance use uh, disorder. So a lot of challenges that rural America faces, they were also um, hit particularly hard by the economic fallout of the pandemic. You had a lot of people just barely hanging on in the first place. Uh, what is a controversial topic, but uh, is one we need to, to have a conversation about is the fate of rural versus urban hospitals. Mm -hmm. Many urban hospitals financially actually are doing quite well because of COVID, because there's lots of money pouring in. And now it's not to say that the people aren't stressed that the, that the nurses and yes, doctors right. and staff... The staffs are under threat. They're, they're under threat. They're stressed. But financially, there's money pouring into some of these hospitals um, um, that, that, are, that are taking care of a lot of these uh, COVID patients, whereas a lot of rural hospitals, they didn't get hit particularly hard with COVID, but they had to shut down, mm -hmm. and they weren't able to do their elective the cases. The ordinary to, course, uh, yes. The revenue. And uh, you already had a uh, crisis of rural hospital closures Pre-COVID. Anyway. Pre-COVID. Yeah. And uh, that, that's another challenge that rural America faces. The access issues are only going to be um, that much worse. They're exacerbated uh, through the pandemic. And, and you said racial bias. Uh, you know, it's hard to have a conversation about racial bias without being labeled or, uh, or maybe people are very guarded because they don't want to be misunderstood. But what do you consider to be, in terms of healthcare, racial bias? Or, I mean, where, where is that evident? 
Well, uh, we see it in a number of places. So I'll give you a very concrete example. Um, one of the last uh, major publications I put out of Surgeon General was a call to action on maternal health, recognizing the fact that a uh, black woman or a Native American woman is three times more likely to die around the time of childbirth than a uh, white or a uh, Asian American woman. And this is after you control for education, after you control for income, after you control for um, where you live. Uh, it is the most glaring example in health that I can think of where there is a clear um, disparity in outcomes based on solely race. And it doesn't matter if you're Beyonce, who almost died giving birth, or if you're Serena Williams, who almost died due to pregnancy-related complications, or if you're Shalon Irving, who is a PhD-educated epidemiologist who worked for me, went into the hospital um, and unfortunately died due to uh, pregnancy-related complications, African-American female. Uh, and so uh, we need to have the courage to, first of all, look for these differences, and that's collecting data and then looking at the data. And then we've got to start to unpack why is this occurring? Is it occurring because of neighborhood or income? Is it occurring because of lack of resources? Because in many cases, it, it, that is it. But we also have to ask ourselves, is this occurring because of bias in the system? And we found that um, from a maternal health standpoint, for instance, in many cases, black women's concerns were being dismissed. If they said, I have abdominal pain, I've got a headache, I don't feel right, um, it was dismissed, it was blown off. They might be in a hospital, exactly, but not being acknowledged or not taken seriously. Exactly. And, and so one of the things that the CDC did um, was put out a hear her campaign. One of the messages is, is simply hear her. But you also have to then go a little bit deeper and understanding that thanks to um, decades, centuries of mistreatment, many people don't even feel comfortable speaking up. Uh, they don't feel comfortable or they feel like it's They're pointless. Articulating. Exactly. And so we have to create a, an environment where people know what to say and are comfortable saying it and then are heard when they say it. And a lot of these issues... Um, whether we like to admit it or not, are impacted by race, whether you feel comfortable speaking up, whether or not you're heard when you speak up. And so, uh, uh, again, that's not saying that you as a doctor, as a white doctor, are, are right. a racist. Don't it, be stigmatized on that. Exactly. It's, it's saying, hey, we need to understand that when you're having an interaction with a patient of color, it the things you say and the things that, that you hear are likely to be interpreted differently than if you're having a conversation with someone of a different color. We have to have the courage to, to admit that, to admit that yeah. yep. and then figure out, okay, so how can we move past that? And that brings me back to your whole trajectory again. So here you are. I mean, Dr. Adams, you have such a grasp of so many dimensions of human life and experience right now. And that's consequent to the way which doors have opened. You've walked into them, but also has to go back to the beginning. When did you imagine that you might, in fact, be a leader, not necessarily a doctor, but that you might find yourself uh, in command, as it were? Do you have a moment in your memory where you thought, man, maybe I'm, I'm going to be at the front of the, this line. Well, what's interesting is that I always felt 
that I was being called to do something um, uh, more so. I mean, I was in the gifted and talented programs um, growing up. I had a thirst for learning. Uh, what I would say is, is, is even more interesting, though, is similar to my wife being able to uh, um, have access to cancer treatment because of something that initially was uh, a negative. In many cases, I was not able to go out and play sports or uh, do the things that other, other little kids do because of my asthma. And I saw that as a negative. But what did I do when I was inside? I was reading books. I was educating myself um, and, and, and finding joy in those different stories. Using that as my opportunity to escape. Being poor. We never went on vacation when I was younger. Uh, you know, I take my kids on vacation um, whenever I can and to the point where they don't even want to go anymore. <laughs> Dad, don't make us go. <laughs> well, tru- truly, and it, it's, it's just mind-boggling to me because we couldn't afford vacations growing up. And that was a negative, but the positive was my escape was through books and learning, and so that opened up other doors for me. But I always felt like um, uh, I was called to do something uh, in a leadership role I just didn't know what that was, and I certainly at that time didn't think it was going to be a Surgeon General of the United States. Something drew you to medicine. Oh, again, I'm, I'm always connected to us to my own journey. <laughs> it's probably not relevant, but I'm just going to tell you my story. So as I was growing up, I went with my dad once uh, to visit a dentist in his home. My dad had some business or something with that guy, and I'll never forget walking into the house, and it was just, it was just like this amazing house. I thought, wow. I'm going to be a dentist. And so then, you know, I'm in the eighth grade or ninth grade, and I thought, oh, I'll, I'll do that dental thing. But then I realized science is not my game. <laughs> <laughs> I'm certainly not going to make it. I'm not going to cut it. And, I, you know, we all navigate sometimes, don't we, through our, our dreams and ambitions and the, and the things we think of in childhood. But then somewhere along the line, something lands. You must have had a, an avocation for science or or biology, or something, where you thought, you know what, I want to get into that. Absolutely. Um, thank goodness for my chemistry teacher, my uh, my calculus teacher. Uh, I really did have people take me under their wings and encourage me, and uh, again, uh, gave me the opportunities to go to, to summer camps. I mean, those were some of my fondest memories, and these weren't like Camp Kikiwaka summer camps. These were math and science summer camps. Mm-hmm. I went to the National Institutes of Health and learned uh, about um, what it meant to work in a lab one summer. Uh, and uh, uh, so I always knew I was going to pursue a, a career in the math and science route. I started off majoring in engineering, actually, um, because, again, it was very math sure, and, uh, of course. and, and science-oriented. Uh, and then... Uh, ended up doing a lot of lab work, and I really enjoyed working in the lab. I enjoyed discovery. I enjoyed trying to uh, figure out how we could uh, um, make people healthier. Uh, and then I, again, met Dr. Carson, but I also worked with uh, someone who was an MD-PhD, and I was working in his lab more on the research side, but I rounded with him in the hospital. And uh, that's when I was like, wow, I kind of like this medicine thing because I get my math fixed, my science fixed, I get my solved problems fixed, but I also get to interact. And uh, I'm someone who, uh, who I think most people realize now is definitely a people person. I get my energy from being around other people, but especially from feeling like I helped other people. 
And so that's really where the uh, medicine bug came from. And uh, even interestingly, my through medicine, even that wasn't enough. Uh, a TED Talk that I gave, I talk about uh, a gentleman who um, I took care of, a young man in, in uh, the hospital down the street, Eskenazi Hospital. And um, he came in, multiple gunshot wounds, and I'll never forget him because he was cursing, yelling, screaming, belligerent. Again, you can't judge a book by its cover. You don't know what people have been through. Um, and uh, right when I was putting him to sleep, um, he grabbed me by the hand and he said, Doc, please don't let me die. And I remember looking at him and saying, I'm not going to. We're going to get through this. You just hang in there. And we worked on him all night, all night. Um, and again, short version of a long story, he made it, made it back home. Well, about a year later, he came back in and he'd been stabbed. Oh, my. And so we patched him up and we took care of him again. And uh, then he came back a third time, shot again. And Do you that, recognize him each time? I mean, you see lots of patients, but you think, oh, I remember you. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> and when we, you know, when we see the, the people who, who were in, on that revolving door, yeah. and so I, I realized that being clinically excellent wasn't enough. You can't just put a Band-Aid on someone, even if you're the best Band-Aid putter on her in the world, and think that that's going to change people's outcomes. And that's what really pushed me um, to, uh, to try to figure out, can I change policies? Can I get in a position where I can um, provide care for thousands, tens of thousands, millions of people at once? And we did that with the naloxone advisory. I could administer naloxone to an individual and save an individual life, I put out an advisory of Surgeon General that went all across the world and that perhaps, it, again, has saved tens of thousands of lives. And so um, uh, certainly um, I, I have always sought out opportunities to try to help other people. That's something that, that's just been a part of me. Um, Another funny story, and I love to talk about my kids. We drove by a house today. My daughter and I had to pick her up for an orthodontist appointment um, um, before I came here. And um, we drove by a really nice house. And I said, one of my uh, former partners lives there. And uh, she said, um, are you sad you don't have a house like that, Daddy? My daughter asked me that question. And I said, I said you know, God has given us um, enough to be very happy. And, uh, and when I meet God, I'm going to have to explain to God what I did with the gifts and the opportunities that God gave me. And I think God's going to want to hear more than how nice my house was or how nice my cars were or, or, or beyond. And I said, and so I'm okay giving up um, the really, really nice things as long as I can um, create a, a nice and comfortable life for you all if it means I have an opportunity to be Surgeon General of the United States and to uh, have a larger impact on people's lives. Matt's brought up this uh, <clears throat> still frame of, uh, of you speaking there and, you know, you, you're, you're describing a calling, Dr. Adams. You have a profound sense of what I would describe as providence, calling you somewhere. And that speaks also to a faith journey of some kind. You're not just uh, random uh, forces in this world. You have a knowledge of a God, a personal God. So tell me a little bit about that. How did your faith journey form? And then 
how does calling speak into things? But let's start with a faith journey. Well, I grew up in a very staunch Catholic family. A lot of people don't realize that um, Maryland, and particularly Baltimore, Maryland, <laughs> is is kind of the uh, Vatican, if you will, of the United well, States. It's Maryland, <laughs> exactly. And so, um, um, my grandfather and uh, my all of my uncles were members of the Knights of St. John, which is a uh, Catholic um, uh, organization. And uh, we went to church religiously. My father is still, you know, he still calls me now during Lent. Are you going to church on Friday? <laughs> you know, it's, it's Friday. Um, don't, it's it's uh, Ash Wednesday. Don't forget to go get your, uh, your ashes. Mm-hmm. Um, make sure you don't eat meat this Friday. I mean, still, still yeah, I get those He's calls. very deep in. Yes. Exactly. And so um, uh, that is a lot of where it came from. Um, I'm going to be honest, though. Um, though I ve- have fond memories of, of a lot of it, um, the Catholic Church was, was and is um, very ritualistic. And so a lot of it was lost on me growing up. It was go through the motions. But just like um, uh, playing baseball or playing basketball, sometimes you do have to go through the motions and have a routine uh, before you really understand and see it all come together. And uh, my, my wife and I, she grew up Pentecostal, which is um, very interesting when you bring a Pentecostal and a Catholic a little together. of a distance across the street from a Catholic tradition. So, so we, we, we split the difference and uh, we go to a Methodist church. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> um, but throughout it all, uh, we, I still have a deep belief in God as a higher power. I still um, uh, believe very much in, in Jesus and what he taught us. And uh, one of the challenges I often have in life is the whole Old, to- Old Testament versus New Testament. It seems like people want to be treated um, in a New Testament way. You should forgive me. Jesus wants you to forgive me. But they want to treat others in a very Old Testament, <laughs> fire and brimstone, yes. I will inflict Don't wrath upon me. you type <laughs> yeah. of way, eye for an eye type of way. And I think that that is a challenge that we all have in our faith journeys is trying to figure out where that uh, where that balance lies, but it was very important for me to have that grounding in terms of where I am right now. I don't think I would have made it through my time as Surgeon General if it weren't for my faith, because there were so many times that I felt set upon from all sides, where I felt like, why am I here? I'm doing the best I can to help people, and the people who I'm most trying to help are the ones who are most viciously tearing me down. I mean, I saw a side of people and human nature that was quite frankly shocking to me when I was Surgeon General. Even yesterday, the, the comment, you know, we talked about uh, the conversation on CNN, a scientific conversation that I was trying to, to broker about whether we should have one dose or two doses, which a lot of science, um, uh, scientists are, are talking about, and just the horrible horrible things that people felt it was their right. They have a license to say. They have a license to, 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 to say to me. And um, I just always remember those Bible stories that I was like, ah, oh, eyes rolling in the back of my head when you're hearing them and reciting them over <laughs> yes, and over yes. and over again when you're younger. But they're back there. And you, and you think about the fact that there is not a hero in the Bible who didn't face terrible challenges who wasn't even sometimes by his own family um, uh, 
criticized, um, uh, beat upon, <laughs> ignored, ignored. And so, uh, you know, I, I also tell people I am very spiritual. I, I, I am a Christian, um, but I, I also try to be very careful about not being heavy-handed with my Christianity. And Christ, Christians, it's interesting because there's debate about that too. And, you, you know, you, you lead a, a large flock of people, and, uh, you know, every, every so often during the year, there's a sermon about your job as a Christian is to go out and, and convince other people and to talk to other people. But I, I, if I'm going to be honest, uh, I, as many other people, you feel a guilt out there trying to— you, you don't want to go out and, and try to put yourself forward as holier than thou. And uh, you don't feel worthy, quite frankly. And uh, I've had um, a lot of challenges in my life. There are a lot of things that I'm not proud of that I've done. Uh, But uh, one thing that I do try to do is just keep getting up and doing a little bit better, learning from it and continuing to do a little bit better. And I I hope that, that that is an example to someone out there because one of the great things that, that I think God has also given me is the ability to uh, kind of see and meet people out there who affirm that, hey, you're not alone, and people are watching you walk through your struggles, and uh, in many ways, it's helping them have the strength to walk through their struggles. Well, I think it was Francis of Assisi who's uh Quoted in some way, I'm paraphrasing, you know, you need to bear witness uh, to the truth always. And if necessary, use words. <laughs> but we tend to run to words as the first uh, demonstration of our faith when actually uh, people watch who we are. And uh, I think Jesus was a master of words, but people also saw who he was. But that leads to a sense of calling, and calling suggests. Uh, a kind of providential plan. You know, if, if God calls me, and I will tell you, I, I believe that I was called into my journey. Uh, as I said, I, I dreamed of politics, but I I actually did a little time in, in the state house in Washington state. Uh, but the Lord called me out of that into the ministry. So I, I'm a believer in that. I've I've seen you quoted in such a way that makes me think you also are. Help me understand your view of that. God has opened up doors for you. You have walked into them. How do you understand that calling, and what do you think is calling you next? Well, uh, I'm currently jobless, <laughs> and uh, and I'm thinking about what comes next for me. And I think that calling, and it's interesting because as a dad, I try to communicate that to my children too, and I struggle. And my teenage boys especially don't want to hear it right now. But I really do believe God gives each of us unique gifts and talents. And then God wants us to use those talents to impact the world and other people's lives in a positive way. And for some people, it's an amazing sports talent. And uh, it's, yes, um, I want you to be a great basketball player, but I want you to use your uh, basketball skills to go around and help other people um, understand the way they might live their lives. And you have some, uh, some basketball players out there who've done a fantastic job of using their bully pulpit. Uh, for, uh, for me, it's continuing to find out how I can have that impact. And as a dad, and you'll, you'll get this, um, 
it's hard with kids because this whole nature versus nurture thing <laughs> that we learned about, my kids grew up in the same house and they could not be more different. And it'd be nice if we could just have one plan to parent our kids. Yes. But um, one of my kids, you know, is great in school, um, very athletic, and is trying to help him understand God's given you these talents, but you can't just sit on them. You have to continue to hone those talents and, uh, and then look for the opportunities, the doors that are, that are going to open up because they're not going to op- just open up if you sit there and, 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 and wait for them and do nothing. I have another kid who um, hates sports, but he's an outdoorsman. Um, he's got a big heart. Um, and uh, it's really, and, and uh, he also struggles in school. Um, he's ADHD, but it's trying to help him understand, okay, you don't, we aren't expecting you to get straight A's. We want you to do the best that you can, um, and we want you to uh, to be happy and to figure out where God's calling you. And then you've got to, with all the kids in a room, watching how you treat one versus the other and getting sore because you did this for one and not for them, explain to them that I'm treating your sister this way and your brother this way because that's what they need um, and not necessarily treating everyone equally. It's, it's interesting. And one of the things that I often talk about is there's a difference between equality and equity. And equality is giving everyone the same thing. Equity is giving everyone what they need to be successful. And I think that's one of the uh, internal struggles um, of being a parent but it's also one of the internal, uh, one of the struggles we have in our faith journeys. Absolutely. Just uh, navigating uh, with equity uh, is more difficult than equality sometimes. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, so so my, my hope is that um, whatever job I take next, I will be able to, um, in a different way than when I was Surgeon General, but... Um, but well, when I was state health commissioner, I was an anesthesiologist, and I literally saved lives. I saved that young man's life. He would not be on this planet right now if I hadn't been there taking care of him that night. Um, then I became the uh, state health commissioner in Indiana, and I was able to move money around and programs around and change um, opportunities for health for people. Then I became Surgeon General, and I was able to use my bully pulpit to uh, change the way people think about um, certain issues and to destigmatize things because, by golly, the Surgeon General says it's okay to carry naloxone. And so now, uh, again, it's trying to figure out where God is calling me to use those talents and skills to uh, have an impact in people's lives in as uh, powerful a way as I can. I have no doubt that there's another chapter for Dr. Adams. I hope so. Of great influence. I have to ask, though, your specialty is in anesthesiology. Yes. How did you land there when you might have gone another direction? I actually started off in internal medicine. And your internal medicine doctor, your family practice doctor, that's who we think of as primary care doctors. They're the ones you see when you've got a cold, when you've got a fever, when you need your high blood pressure treated. And... um. I still enjoy that. I enjoy it very much um, because you form relationships with people. But I uh, am also, as my wife puts it, um, kind uh, politely, a busybody. And um, one of the challenges with uh, internal medicine is that if you come into my office and you have high blood pressure, I go, huh, tell me about your diet. Tell me how much you're exercising. Okay, go home, exercise more, eat better, come back in three weeks. Three weeks you come back, you still got high blood pressure. 
saying, okay, we're going to put you on this pill. This is the starting dose. Go home. Come back in three weeks. Three weeks you come back, and so on and so forth. And it may take me weeks to months to years to get your blood pressure under control. As an anesthesiologist, if I'm in the operating room and your blood pressure is high, I reach into my little drawer, I pull out a syringe, and I inject one cc. And if your uh, blood pressure isn't lower in 30 to 60 seconds, I inject another cc. And by golly, within five minutes, I have your blood pressure solved under Done. control. <laughs> exactly. And so I like that immediate feedback. Mm-hmm. I like the breath of uh, anesthesia, too. Uh, there are days when uh, uh, I've worked at the hospital down the street from us that I talked about, Ball Memorial, mm-hmm. where I've taken care of a six-month-old um, in, the, uh, you know, in the operating room, and then I've taken care of a 96-year-old with a hip fracture. Yes. And so, so much um, variety, too. Hands-on. Um, and uh, in a real variety. And in, in a weird way, you have a powerful opportunity to impact people's lives in anesthesia because there is not a moment in many people's lives when they are more scared or vulnerable or more vulnerable um, than, uh, than when they're coming in for a surgery. The medications we give you to keep you asleep during surgery are the same medications they use to execute people. And I, I, I don't I feel better now. Well, I, 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 I don't. I don't say that to scare people no, so much no. as I say that to help people understand that we are literally bringing you um, to the to, to the bridge between life and death and keeping you alive while a surgeon cuts on you and does something that you would never be able to tolerate while you're awake, and then we bring you back, and um, and it's a powerful opportunity to talk to people about quitting smoking. Uh, I, anesthesiologists do epidurals. Uh, I will often talk to uh, the, the people in the room with the mom when I'm putting in the epidural because you can smell the cigarette smoke when you come in the room about, uh, hey, um, have you ever thought about quitting? It'd be a good time uh, with a new baby coming in the home. And, you, you know, you find a way to do it right, right. gently, politely, not shaming them. But um, you're much more likely to have success in that environment than you are in, uh, in many other environments out there where people don't have that, that motivation, um, that, that, that immediate focus on their health. Well, Dr. Adams, I'm going to suggest to you something that you put in my mind earlier in the conversation when you said at Ellis Island, there were public health officials who were screening immigrants to the country in 15-second uh, physicals. And I'm saying, if you open a practice like that, 15 seconds... Uh, there's a crowd outside the door. <laughs> you <could> do 15 <laughs> seconds. But before we let you go, Dr. Adams, let's go back to the COVID-19 pandemic, which has defined so much of your public persona in recent days. Tell me, uh, you and I are in this room. Uh, we are isolated in this room. And both of us talked about this before we sat at the table, that we've been inoculated. But should I still be wearing a mask? Should we still be wearing masks? What do you say? I say that we should still be wearing a mask when we are out in public again. And I want people to understand that you and I had a conversation. We both had our vaccinations. We still are a reasonable distance apart. We've got good ventilation in our room. Everything is about a risk continuum. Mm -hmm. And there are certain things that increase your risk of getting or spreading COVID. And there are certain things that decrease your risk of getting or spreading COVID. And what I tell people is try to do as many things as you reasonably can to lower your risk. You and I are trying to do a podcast where we want people to be able to hear our voices. And so we looked at the 
the mm-hmm. um, downside of us wearing a mask versus the benefit. And we made a decision based on the other things that we're doing to mitigate that risk to not wear our mask. And so it, it's not a always or never. And I think that's something that's lost on people because people want an easy answer mm-hmm. and it's hard to communicate nuance. But at the end of the day, um, we still want people when they're in public around other people to wear a when mask. When you can't have the conversation and sort out all the risks, wear a mask. Exactly, because um, yeah. if you and I were to run into each other at the grocery store um, and neither one of us knew each other, I wouldn't know if you'd been sure. inoculated or not. Um, there's And there's also the, sim- the symbolic nature of wearing a mask. And it we, says something. And we have our mask with us. And if we, if we were out in public and when we were around other people earlier, we wore our mask because people need to see that. So there's the symbolic part of it. There's the scientific part of it that uh, we still don't know for sure uh, that these vaccines are going to be as effective at preventing disease spread as they are at preventing hospitalization and death. And protecting us. Exactly. May not mean I can't still be a carrier. Exactly. And then there's Which, the risk-benefit equation. Okay. So the last question, of course, the obvious answer. People should get this vaccine. If you have the opportunity to get a vaccine, take one. I say it's obvious because you and I both did that, but... I had a wonderful conversation with the uh, pastor, Pastor Johnson of Eastern Star Church, which is a big um, church in Indy. Big church in Indy, um, just last week, and we we talked about um, this story that I love about the man who was in the boat and um, hole in the boat. The boat starts going down. Someone sees him. They come over and they say, "Hey, do you need some help?" And he goes, "No, God's going to save me," and sends him away. And the boat gets a little lower, and another person comes over. God's going to save me, uh, and so on and so forth. And the guy drowns, and he's at the, uh, uh, you know, he's at the pearly gates talking to St. Peter, and he goes, hey, what gives? What happened? And uh, he says, we sent three people out there to save you, and you kept sending them away. And I tell that story because um, I want people to understand these vaccines, um, not just the COVID one, but, but other vaccines out there too, they are gifts from God. It truly is a miracle when you look at the number of lives that have been saved by vaccinations and the fact that we can end this pandemic if we get our vaccinations. But it only works if we choose to take them. And so incredibly important that we take them. Um, I got mine on live TV because I wanted people to to, to see me walking the talk. And I actually worked with the companies saw the studies, know the inventors of the vaccines, I believe they are incredibly safe. Uh, Some frequently asked questions, you cannot get COVID from the vaccines because we're not giving you the virus. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's the mRNA vaccines, which are just the instructions to to the virus. And then the new Johnson & Johnson vaccine is not the COVID virus either. It is an inactivated um, adenovirus, which is the virus which causes the common cold. And it uh, then produces the protein so that you're... your body builds antibodies, but you cannot get COVID um, from this. And uh, right now, there have been far, far, far more hospitalizations, complications, death from COVID than, than from the vaccine. Than from the vaccine. Talk about risk mitigation. Exactly, and so so it's there all it's all risk benefit. There you go. So so funny funny thing in that picture right there. Everyone is the first thing people said when when they saw that picture. What do you think it was? Oh. They thought I was flexing. 
Well, I mean, come on. They, 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 they thought I was flexing. Yeah, you're looking good there, uh, well, Dr. Adams. I think I was just nervous because I, I was about to get a shot on live TV and I didn't <laughs> want to squeal. Uh, no, but I, <laughs> I thought that's just your relaxed arm. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> so glad to have you here. Thanks for, again, all you've done for the public good. Oh, and know that our you. prayers are with you for that next chapter. I know the Lord has a calling. Well, thank you. And, and I ask you and anyone who feels so inclined to pray for me, to pray for my wife and my family, and to pray for all the public servants out there who are making very real sacrifices to uh, follow their calling. And uh, one of the things that I fear is that COVID will discourage many people mm. from following that, that calling. calling. Yes, and sir. so uh, we need to understand that um, individuals are called, but people and communities serve and one of the ways that you can serve is by supporting other people who have a calling to go and do some of these difficult on the front things line. on the front line. So thank you for the opportunity to be uh, the United States Surgeon General for the last four years. Thank you for the opportunity to have this conversation with you in a little bit of a longer format today because I hope people get to have a little bit better of a picture of me and uh, then that caricature that maybe they were carrying around Absolutely. in their mind. Well, I'll just say, I, I didn't, uh, Vice President Pence did not call me up asking about whether he should call you to be the Surgeon General. But if he had, I'd say, you go for that guy. He is the finest. Thanks, Dr. Adams. Thank you. Godspeed. For more information, visit allthattosay.org. Thank you for joining the conversation. Don't forget to like and subscribe.